you. Uh, if you got your Bible, go ahead and grab it and turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, we are finishing up our series on the thrill of hope. I hope you have experienced hope at some point in your life where you've experienced the thrill. I hope you've experienced hope in Jesus at some point in your life where you've experienced the thrill, where your heart leapt at what God's desire is for you, at what God has done for you, at what God is up to in the midst of your life. There is a thrill when we truly come to hope. I know my children are thrilled at the idea of opening gifts. Uh, yesterday, Kid City put on a holiday hangout and they asked the kids, uh, what gifts did the Magi bring, did the wise men bring? And Dwindle just talked about you know, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And my son Judah is the know-it-all in the family. He's the one who wants to answer every question. Uh, he takes after his dad, unfortunately. Uh, and so Judah decides to answer and he says, gold, frankincense, and merchants. So close. So close. Almost had it, uh, but whiffed by, by, by just a little bit. Uh, I love this time of year. I love the hope that it represents. I hope that there's some things that you're hoping for in this season. I hope there's some things you're hoping for as we go into the new year. So far in this series, we've seen how Jesus brings hope and, and fulfills hope by keeping God's promises. God had made promises to Abraham that Jesus fulfilled. God had made promises to David that Jesus fulfilled that we've seen. And so last week, we actually saw four places that we can find hope in Christ, four places for us to look if we need hope in Christ. We find hope by looking backwards to what Jesus has done. In just a few moments, we're going to partake of communion. We're going to look backwards to what Jesus did for us, to his sacrifice for us. We find hope looking outwards to what Jesus is doing. Um, this week, I was blessed to have lunch with about 10 pastors from DeSoto County. And, and it finds, it, it's so encouraging to me that we're not doing this by ourselves. And we are, we are part of a bigger family, man. I'm grateful for our family, and I love our church. There's no place I'd rather be than City Church. Uh, but I'm so grateful that we are not alone. Man, we have brothers and sisters. We're part of a bigger kingdom, and so we can look outward and find hope. Man, look at what God's doing over here. Look at what God's doing in this church, in this ministry, in this uh, individual's life. We find hope looking outwards. Thirdly, we find hope looking inwards to where Jesus resides. He's Emmanuel. He is God with us. And through his Holy Spirit, he's with us right now. He's not just with us when we gather. He's with us when we scatter, when we're on our own, when we're going through tough times, when we're facing temptation, when we're discouraged. He is with us wherever we are. And sometimes we just need to look inside and remember Jesus is here. He's with me. Fourth, we find hope by looking forward to what Jesus We'll do. In fact, communion always calls us to, to declare Jesus' death until he comes again. So communion has this forward-looking aspect to it as well. So we've been looking at these promises made by God and kept by God. Today's message enters into another fulfilled promise, the virgin birth. The Lord God spoke through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, and made a promise. He said, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Early, early, early on, around 700 years before Jesus arrived, God makes this promise of a virgin 
birth. In fact, really, if we were to go back to the proto-evangelion, which Dwindle talked about in week one, this, this promise God makes, this forecast, this prophecy he makes in Genesis chapter 3 as he's giving the curse to, to Eve and to the, to the serpent. He says this, he says, the seed of the woman will crush your head to the serpent. So he says the seed, not of the man, the seed of the woman. Typically seed is associated as a, as a male aspect. The female has the egg. I'm not going to get in too much into sex ed 101 with you, but I think most of us know those terms and have an, a concept of those things. Uh, but God said, hey, the seed of the woman is going to come. And so he was already suggesting and hinting at something that he makes explicit in Isaiah that he's going to send his son through a virgin. Uh, why is that significant? Why does that matter? Bible scholars have argued over this for centuries. Why did Jesus need to be born of a virgin? My pastor had a theory, which he probably didn't create. He probably heard it from somebody, but he shared it, and I, I grabbed a hold of it, and I, I think it, it makes a lot of sense. Pastor Willie George at Church on the Move, he said the reason why it matters is that sin is actually passed down through the Father. Um, we see this a lot in Scripture, right? It says that the sins of the fathers will be handed down to the sons. And so that the actual sin nature uh, is passed down through the father. And so in order for Jesus to not be born destined to sin, he couldn't have an earthly father. He couldn't have that, that Y chromosome that, that came. And so... Uh, I don't know if that's exactly how it worked. I don't know exactly. The Bible doesn't tell us. But the Bible does tell us he was born of a virgin. The Bible goes out of its way to make sure we understand, both in pro prophetic scripture as well as in the Christmas story, that Joseph and Mary never slept together before Jesus was born, that Mary was a virgin. And so I think it matters significantly. If it matters to God, it should matter to us. Uh, and God goes out of his way to make sure that we know this is part of the story. Jesus was born of a virgin. Um, the Messiah, Jesus, is given two important names for us in Matthew chapter 1. I told you to turn there already. Both of them point to who he is and to what he will do for his people. The Bible typically does not give names haphazardly. Right, like we give names generally because we think they sound cool. Uh, maybe I know this generation like just likes to make up names. Uh, we're just going to manufacture something, and I don't care if the spelling doesn't make sense. This is how we're going to do it, right? Uh, well, that's not how they named things two thousand years ago. Two thousand years ago, the names meant something. There was a deep purpose and deep meaning. Usually, the names were related to family and had a history. Um, but the names always, they, they thought through the meaning. The meanings were not random or haphazard. They meant something. So in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, uh, it says, She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. Why is he supposed to be named Jesus? This is the Hebrew name Yeshua. It's actually the name that we actually get uh, Joshua from. So shout out to Joshua. I think there's just one in the room, Josh Newman. Uh, no pressure. Uh, he just got the same name as Jesus. No big deal. Uh, so uh, he was given the name Jesus. Why? Why? Because Jesus means he saves. Literally means he saves. And so he would give him the name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. This verse, by the way, is in the angelic visitation to Joseph. 
Uh, Matthew records for us a number of angelic visitations. I think it's like six angelic visitations just in the Christmas story, just in these first two chapters of the book of Matthew. And so this is where the, the angel shows up and he tells Joseph, hey, <clears throat> you just broke off your engagement with Mary. I'm going to need you to get back together with her. Because uh, she didn't get pregnant by sin. She didn't get pregnant by mistake. She is pregnant by the Holy Spirit. This is my plan, and it's significant. It's massive, and you've got a role to play, Joseph, in my plan to save the world. And so he gives Joseph the name. You're going to name him Jesus. He saves. Everybody say, he saves. He saves. Why does the enemy hate the name of Jesus? Because every time we speak the name of Jesus, yes, there's power in the name. Yes, there's supernatural something that happens. There's an impact in the name of Jesus that God has. But the enemy hates the name of Jesus because every time he hears it, we're reminding him what he did and what he does. He saves. That name should encourage us. That name should bring hope when we hear it. we got to be careful not to use that name as, a, as an expletive in a derogatory sense. Man, the name is powerful. Jesus saves. It's who he is. Second name in Matthew 1 comes just two verses later. Matthew quotes what we already read in Isaiah 7:14 it says the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son this all happened because to fulfill what was said in Isaiah 7:14 is what verse 22 says and then 23 says the virgin will conceive and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel and then Matthew just goes ahead and spells it out for us. It's not spelled out in Isaiah what Emmanuel means. In Isaiah, apparently, people were more familiar with the Hebrew, and so he didn't have to say Emmanuel means God with us. Uh, but 700 years later, after they had gone off into captivity and all the things that had gone on, uh, it needed to be stated explicitly. So Matthew just makes it clear. He says, they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Isn't it cool that God wants to be with us? Isn't it cool that God wants to commune with us, that he wants to inhabit us? My, my favorite promises in Scripture center on this idea that, that God inhabits the praises of his people. He wants to be with us. That when we draw near to God, he draws near to us. That when two or more are gathered in his name, that Jesus Christ is right there with us. That Jesus, as he gives the great commission, and he sends his disciples out, and he says, hey, I want you to be my, my witnesses. I want you to go and baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Then he gives this promise. He says, and surely I will be with you. How long? Always. Until the very end of the age, Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. Now, why can Jesus save? He saves his literal name, Jesus, comes out of his pro prophetic name, Emmanuel. He saves because he's with us, because he's the perfect sacrifice. He's the only sacrifice. If there was no Emmanuel, there would be no salvation. You understand, if there's no Emmanuel, there's no Jesus. If there's no God with us, there's no God saves because his salvation is a mechanism of his incarnation. It's a mechanism of him coming to be with us. Jesus fulfills these promises. Watch what happens next in the story. When Joseph woke up, verse 24, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. I think it's interesting, in biblical times, the name was 
often entrusted as the father's responsibility to name the child. I think in, most of the time uh, in our culture, the mom has a little more say or a little more sway when it comes to naming the children. Uh, but it, b- back then, Joseph was the one entrusted with this. Hey, you are going to name the son. But here's what I want you to see in verses 24 and 25. Joseph fulfilled God's commands before God fulfilled his promises. The promise was that Jesus was going to save. Jesus hadn't saved yet, right? The promise was that that Jesus was going to be God with us. Jesus hadn't even arrived yet, and Joseph begins to fulfill the commands. What commands did he fulfill? Well, he didn't touch his wife. He stayed away from his wife. Through, Through the entirety of the pregnancy, he allowed her to remain a virgin just as God commanded him. I think sometimes God's asking us for some obedience before we see God's action. Now, God's faithful, and God's good, and God has initiated so many things and then so many things for us before we've ever responded. Please understand this. God has absolutely made the first move. But, but I think in some areas of our life, God is just saying, hey, if you'll show some faithfulness, if you'll show some obedience, I'm going to follow up and, and, and show some provision, right? That man, that that if we sow to the flesh, we'll reap from the flesh, but if we sow to the spirit, we'll reap from the spirit. And so I think there's some biblical implication here that that even when God wants to do something tremendous, and there's nothing more tremendous than the Christmas story, it still requires some faithfulness on somebody's part. Somebody still has to play a role, that God doesn't do anything in our world outside of human involvement. He's invited us into his story. Mary is invited into his story. Joseph is invited into his story, and to their credit, praise God, they faithfully responded. They grabbed a hold of their roles, and they committed to those roles. They obediently followed, even when it didn't make sense. They chose God's way rather than their own way. As we wrap up a year and prepare our hearts and our minds for a new year, I would encourage you, I would challenge you to evaluate, am I, am I choosing my way or am I choosing God's way? Am I, am I expecting God to show up and provide some miracle, some, some incredible thing for me, but I'm not walking in faithfulness myself? And don't get me wrong, sometimes God does it anyway because he's just good and he loves us and he's incredible. I'm not saying the reason why you haven't seen God move in your life is because you're disobedient. Don't, don't misinterpret what I'm saying. What I am saying is this. Sometimes God's provision requires obedience. It just does. He's called us to be people of obedience. In fact, Jesus says the way that we demonstrate our love for him, he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Praise God, Joseph did. Praise God, Mary did. They walked out what God asked of them. They were faithful to the call, and they saw God move in this tremendous way. Jesus saves. Jesus is God with us, thankfully. C.S. Lewis is one of my favorite theologians. When I was a kid, I read the Chronicles of Narnia a number of times, and he's got so many just brilliant thoughts and brilliant observations. And I read this week uh, some excerpts from his book, Miracles, Uh, And he talks a lot in miracles uh, about the incarnation. In fact, he talks a lot about the incarnation in in many of his writings. Check, Check out this quote here. He says, the central miracle asserted by Christians is the incarnation. It's Jesus arriving. It's Jesus showing up on the scene. It's God becoming man. He says, this is the central miracle asserted in Christianity. 
They say that God became man. Every other miracle prepares for this, the incarnation, or exhibits this, the incarnation, or results from this, the incarnation. Just as every natural event is the manifestation at a particular place and moment of nature's total character, so every particular Christian miracle manifests at a particular place and moment the character and significance of the incarnation. In other words, every miracle God's done in your life is a reflection of what he did in the incarnation. It's empowered by the incarnation. It points back to the incarnation. He says there's no question in Christianity of arbitrary inferences just scattered about or interferences, excuse me, just scattered about. It relates not a series of disconnected raids on nature, but the various steps of a strategically coherent invasion, an invasion which intends complete conquest and occupation. This is God invading earth. This is heaven coming down. This is the kingdom arriving. This is the invasion he's talking about. The fitness and therefore credibility of the particular miracles depends on the relation to the grand miracle. All discussion of them in isolation from it is futile. I told you a few weeks ago that, that I actually believe that the death and resurrection of Jesus, as important as it is and as magnificent as it is, that, it, that it's not the most significant thing that God did. I actually believe that Christmas is the most significant thing because the death and resurrection of Jesus is the mechanism by which God makes Christmas permanent. In other words, God's heart is to be with us. We see it at the end of the book. We see it at the beginning of the book. In Genesis, God's with Adam and Eve. In Revelation, it says that I will be their God and they will be my people and I will wipe away every tear from their eyes. God comes to be with us. That's his ultimate desire is to be with his people. And so, yes, the death and resurrection had to happen. Praise God the death and resurrection happened. I couldn't be with God if it weren't for that. But God's ultimate goal for you is not just to save you. His ultimate goal for you is not just to free you from sin as incredible as those goals are God's ultimate goal is to be with you and when you grab a hold of that when you get a revelation of that when it makes sense that God loves me so much he actually wants to inhabit me he actually wants to be with me he wants to go everywhere with me and do everything with me when you get that revelation it sparks this tremendous joy I mean, it's, there, there, there's hope. There's a thrill of hope when you realize that the most important being in all of creation didn't just want me to have to pay for my sins, which, praise God, he didn't want me to have to pay for my sins, but he actually wants to dwell with me. C.S. Lewis says it's the central miracle in all of creation that all the other miracles hang on this one, and, and I agree. I believe it. There's a thrill of hope that comes from it. In another one of his writings, in one of his most famous writings called Mere Christianity, Lewis says this. He says, the son of man became a man to enable men to become sons of God. Now, if you don't like the gender specificity of that, the son of God became human to enable humans to become children of God. Right, this is not meant to eliminate females from the equation. This is just the way that people spoke 70 years ago when C.S. Lewis was writing. But God came a man so that we could become God's child. That's the whole point. That's the whole purpose. Because Jesus became man, we 
have hope. I want to show you very, very quickly before we take communion, three areas of hope that Jesus provides. Jesus' incarnation, him becoming man, God with us, that it provides. Number one, it provides for us hope for Jesus' victory over sin, and not just sin in general, over our sin. Hebrews 4 puts it this way. Jesus understands every weakness of ours because he was tempted in every way that we are. But, big button scripture, but he did not sin. So whenever we are in need, we should come bravely before the throne of our merciful God. There we will be treated with undeserved grace, and we will find help. If you've got temptation, if you've got a sin struggle, if you've got an area in your life that doesn't look like what Jesus would want it to look like, you can find hope in him. He's the one who defeated sin. Don't find hope in your pastor. Don't find hope in your city group director. Don't find hope in your ministry leader. None of us have defeated sin, but Jesus has. We can find hope in him. If you want hope for freedom from addiction, if you want hope for, for power over that temptation, you can look to Jesus. He was tempted the same ways that we were, but he did not sin. And so we can go boldly before the throne of grace and find help for our time of need. Jesus gives us hope for his victory over sin. Secondly, we receive hope for Jesus' compassion for our suffering. Jesus' compassion for our suffering. We're not going to turn there today, but one of my favorite passages to read when we take communion is Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is this incredible prophecy about Jesus, the Lamb, this sacrifice for us about how he has taken our place and bore our sin, our shame, our sorrows. And Isaiah 53, verse 3 says this. It says, he was despised and rejected by mankind. Forecast of Jesus, this prophecy about Jesus. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. Why can we cast our cares on Jesus when we're suffering, when, when, when we're sick, when we're hurting, when we feel rejected, when we feel overlooked? Because Jesus can identify with all those things. He suffered greatly, more greatly than most of us will ever even fathom suffering. And he pushed through that suffering. He endured that suffering because he understood that God had a plan on the other side of it. And so if you need compassion for your suffering, man, maybe Christmas is a difficult season. Because there's somebody who's not here who's supposed to be here. And there's somebody who, who, who was a big part of Christmas's past, who is no longer a part of Christmas present for whatever reason, whether that's death, whether that's distance, whether that's, that's divorce, right? I don't know what the reason it might be in your life, but there may be somebody who's not there, a, a parent who's abandoned you, a friend who's betrayed you, a loved one who's passed away, Jesus understands all those things. He's experienced betrayal. He's experienced, in a spiritual sense, divorce. The, the, the people of Israel were his bride, God's bride. There was a marriage, and they rejected their wedding vows. And so Jesus has gone through all of this. He's experienced loss, and he knows how to comfort those who mourn. He knows how to be close with us because he is God with us. Thirdly, we can turn to Jesus 
and the incarnation for hope for Jesus' salvation. You guys already know this, right? You know that Jesus is the only place we can turn to for hope for salvation. But 1 Thessalonians 5 puts it this way. It says, so then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. The Apostle Paul writing this letter uses a lot of the same imagery that the Apostle Peter used when we studied the book of 1 Peter this year. He said, man, be awake. Man, be sober-minded. Paul uses these same words. He says, for those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night, verse 8. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, pulling on faith and love as a breastplate. And then look at this. And the hope of salvation as a helmet. What's salvation do? Protects your mind. You're wrestling with discouragement. Man, with depression, with those things, man, that just keep raiding your mind. The enemy just keeps, man, making your, your mind a punching bag. Jesus has provided hope as a helmet, as a protection. That doesn't mean there's never a time for medication. doesn't mean there's never a time for counseling. I'm not saying those things. But I'm saying this. Ultimately, the medication's goal should be to get us to a place where we can again look to the hope of salvation. Ultimately, the counseling's goal should be to get us to a place where we can stand on the hope of salvation because that's where our hope comes from. Verse 9, for God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. The incarnation God with us, Jesus coming on Christmas is so that we might have hope for salvation. Now, most of us in this room have already received salvation, so how can I hope for something I already have? Well, this is the beauty of salvation. Salvation is already, but not yet. You've already received it. Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. It's yours when this life ends. But there is something to come that we haven't experienced yet. There's a salvation we haven't yet walked in and comprehended and understood. And so we have hope for something better than what we've already received. What we already have is great. It's tremendous. But God has something even better in store for us. Ultimately, salvation is what Jesus does because salvation is who Jesus is. He's Jesus. He saves. That's who he is. And so because that's who he is, that's his identity. That's what God the Father has named him. He's the one who saves. And so he brings salvation. And because of his salvation, he can bring anything else we need. He can bring healing because he saves. He can bring forgiveness because he saves. He can bring restoration because he saves. Whatever you need to hope for, whatever you're believing God for, whatever you're asking God to do this in my life, for the lives of the one around me ultimately it comes because he's Jesus the one who saves we're gonna close our time